You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmilewaltham.com. On July 11th, 1962, Nelson Mandela was arrested by the South African police. And prior to this, he had been dedicating his life to ending apartheid in South Africa. But rather than being celebrated for his work and uh, to bring peace and equality to his nation, he was treated as a terrorist. And among some other trumped-up charges, Mandela was accused of recruiting people for the purpose of violent revolution and acts of sabotage. And near the end of his trial, Mandela gave these final words on his own behalf. This is what he said. During my lifetime, I've dedicated my life to the struggle of the African people. I've fought against white domination and I have fought against black domination. I've cherished the ideal of a democratic and free society in which all persons will live together in harmony with equal opportunities. It is an ideal for which I hope to live for and see realized. But my Lord, if it needs to be, it is an ideal for which I am prepared to die. And as history records, uh, Mandela was convicted of these charges. And on June 12, 1964, Nelson Mandela was sentenced to life in prison. For the first 18 years of his imprisonment, he was in the notoriously brutal uh, Robben Island prison, confined to a small cell without bed or plumbing, and forced every day to do hard labor in a quarry. He was allowed to receive and write one letter every six months and get one visitor per year for 30 minutes. Imagine that. Isolated, cut off. In 82, he was moved to Paul Moore's prison and later to a cottage in 1988 where he lived under house arrest. And then finally, on February 11th, 1990, if you're doing the math, that's 27 years and eight months. He was in prison for over 10,000 days. He was finally released. To imagine him as he's walking out the door. Imagine what he's seeing. Imagine what he's feeling. Imagine maybe how you might feel after spending 10,000 days in prison on false charges. And as he walked away from his prison cell and through the gates to take his first steps as a free man, he said these famous words. As I finally walked through those gates, I felt even at the age of 71 that my life was beginning anew. That his life was beginning anew. Now, I don't know about you, but after 10,000 days of being imprisoned on false charges, I, I would probably have some different words. Mandela did not waste his first words of freedom on bitterness. Rather, he used his first words to express the newness of life that comes from knowing that you've moved from condemnation to justification. Where he was once condemned, he was now made right, vindicated. He went from being imprisoned to emancipated. And as beautiful and moving as it was to see a man deny all the right impulses of bitterness, 
He set his eyes fully on moving forward with his freedom. And friends, what I want to tell you this morning that is that this is but a glimpse of what God wants to tell us today in his word in Romans 1, uh, 8, 1 through 4. Paul will tell us that if we are in Christ Jesus, your life has begun anew. You're no longer condemned, but made whole. You're no longer imprisoned, but set free. Romans 8 has been called the greatest chapter in the greatest book of the Bible. And I know preachers are prone to over-exaggeration. But listen to how Puritan preacher Thomas Jacob spoke of Romans 8. He said, the Holy Bible is the book of books, meaning the Bible is the best of all the books. And in some, though not in all respects, this chapter may be styled as the chapter of chapters. Why? Well, from first to last, it is high gospel. It is all gospel, and it is all the gospel, either directly or reductively, it having in it the very sum, marrow, pith of all gospel revelation. It is indeed the epitome, abridgment, and storehouse of all the saints' privileges and duties. You have in it the love of God and of Christ displayed to the utmost and shining forth in its greatest splendor. Friends, that is Romans chapter 8. If there were one chapter I would commend to memorizing, one chapter that I would say your soul needs to think on every single word, it would be this chapter It begins with no condemnation and it ends with no separation. Though all of scripture is equally inspired, meaning it's important and it's given to us by God, not every passage of scripture is equally inspiring. If you don't believe me, read Leviticus 15 next to Romans 8 and tell me how you feel after reading either chapter. This chapter is certainly one of the high peaks of the Bible. It's the Mount Everest of Scripture and worth our careful attention over the next few months. And this morning, we're going to start at the beginning and look at the first four verses. And as Paul uh, opens up this chapter, it's like picturing us walking out of the prison through the gates to begin life anew. We'll see three things as we move through Romans 8 this morning. First, we will see that our condemnation has been annulled. Our condemnation has been annulled. In Christ Jesus, we are free from the penalty of sin. Second, we'll see that our liberation has begun. In Christ Jesus, we are being freed from the power of sin. Being freed, it's a progressive thing. And third, we'll see that our empowerment is the Spirit. In Christ Jesus, not only is our penalty gone, not only are we being free from the power of the Spirit, but we are are given the gift of the Holy Spirit to walk in newness of life. So let's start in verse 1 to see that there is therefore now no condemnation because our condemnation has been annulled. Look with me again at verse 1. Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now in this very compact Sentence, we have one of the clearest declarations of the gospel. Let's unpack it together. Every word is pregnant with meaning. Now, anytime uh, you come to scripture, especially in Paul's writings, and you see the word therefore, it's an important word. It's one of those words that you should stop. It's a, first of all, it's, a, it's an invitation to pause and consider what's been said before. 
You need to stop and not move on and go, okay, what has he said so far? I need to remember that. And second, it's meant to be a summary. It's giving a, a summary statement of the ground that's been covered so far. Often in bringing together kind of a conclusion. Like at the end of the argument, you're saying, here's the thing I want you to take away. And that's what we have here. Romans 8.1 is a summary statement of the argument so far. So quickly, Romans 1-3 to is the bad news of the gospel. You read Romans 1-3 to and it's depressing. It's telling us a lot of horrible things about the state of humanity. For three chapters, Paul shows how humanity has turned away from God to embrace a life of idolatry. Our sin, Paul says, has caused our minds to become futile. So that we knowingly suppress the truth, call evil things good, and good things evil. Our minds are broken. Sin has twisted our hearts, so Paul says they're darkened. And they lead us to delight in self-gratifying desires. In other words, Paul is saying, if you are not in Christ, your mind and your heart are drawn to things that, 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 that push you further away from God. Collectively, humanity willingly participates in a worldwide rebellion against God. Instead of being grateful to God for this gift of life, we are entitled, we are ungrateful, and selfish. Every single one of us, at some point in our life, even right now, finds significance and purpose in created things instead of in God our Creator. It is high treason, friends. The plague of sin doesn't just stay internally. It's not just uh, our own individual problem. The plague of sin has worked its way uh, into every fabric of our lives and, and, and it emanates from us so that our communities and our societal structures are fractured and broken. Entropy and decay are the normal order of the world. So not only are we broken, but there's brokenness all around us. Paul says, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one seeks after God, whether Jew or Gentile. No one is innocent. And every single person who has ever been born stands under the just judgment of God. We are not just possibly guilty, maybe guilty. We are decidedly guilty, and it's not even close. And therefore, we are condemned. But then, at the end of Romans 3 and into chapter 5, Paul says, as bad as the bad news is, and friends, it's terrible news, the good news is even greater. Paul tells us that because God is gracious, God's, God the Father sent God the Son to take on flesh and save us from our sins. So that on the cross, Jesus took upon himself all of the just consequences, all of the penalty that we deserve. And he was punished for it. So he stood in our place. It should have been you and me, but instead Christ said, I will stand in their place. And it enabled God to be both just to rightly punish sin and simultaneously to graciously be the justifier, the make righter of all who believe. Jesus became condemned so that we could be pardoned. It's called the great exchange of the gospel. In one of the earliest Christian letters after the New Testament, there's a, a, a work called the Epistle to Diognetus. We don't call anyone Diognetus today. 
Although I think maybe we should. Listen to this. Listen to how the writer describes this great exchange. He says, oh, the sweet exchange. Oh, the incomprehensible work of God. Oh, the unexpected blessings. And by the way, when he's saying like, oh, the sweet exchange, oh, he's worshiping. What he's done, this is what good theology does. When you have good theology, it leads to doxology. When you consider uh, the, the, the beauty of the gospel, what God has done, it should burst forth in worship. See, good theology doesn't make your heart cold towards God. Good theology actually leads you to a warmness towards the Lord. Oh, the unexpected blessings. Here's the theology. That the sinfulness of many should be hidden in one righteous person. That's Jesus. While the righteousness of one, Christ's righteousness, should justify many sinners. You see what happens? Our sin is hid in Christ. His righteousness is on display in us. You see the exchange happening? Jesus takes our sin. It was placed on him. That's why Paul says in Colossians that our record of debt was nailed to the cross. Jesus didn't have a record of debt. The reason Christ goes to the cross is for our sins. That's why our record was nailed to the cross. Jesus, though he himself knew no sin, Paul says he became sin. He says this in 2 Corinthians 5, that he who knew no sin became sin. What Paul is trying to capture in that is that he so identified with our sins, it's like he became it. He takes our sin, and what does he give us in return? He gives us his life. Jesus lived the life that you and I have failed to live. Achieving the righteousness that we fail to achieve. And then he gives that righteousness as a credit to our account. So that God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Jesus became condemned so that we could be pardoned. And then in chapter 4, Paul says, don't forget. You don't earn this gift like you earn a paycheck. We receive this gift through faith. And not only is that how it is today, it's how it's always been. He gives two examples from some Old Testament saints, Father Abraham and King David, to illustrate that sinners have always been saved by grace through faith. And in chapter 5, he starts to uh, teach on this, this doctrine of our union with Christ. And he's unpacking the implications of the gospel. And he says, because we've been pardoned, because we've been declared righteous... Here are the implications. First and foremost, we have peace with God. We used to be uh, at odds with God, enmity with God, enemies of God. But guess what? We are now at peace. We have access to God the Father, new life in the Spirit. And because he knows how quickly we forget the gospel, he reminds us that God has demonstrated his great love for us by dying for us, securing our salvation long before we did anything to earn it. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. Died for us before we did anything to deserve it. And because of Jesus, not only are our sins forgiven, we are reconciled to God. Later in chapter 5 and 6, Paul begins to explain more about this union with Christ, this being joined to Jesus. In Christ, God has created a new humanity with a new trajectory So that we are no longer identified as being in Adam, sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. We have a new identity in Christ, a new representative. 
In Romans 6, Paul says we've been united with Jesus in his death and also in his resurrection. We have, as it were, gone with him into the grave and been raised with that victory. So his death became our death. His victory became our victory. His resurrection became our resurrection. His life is our life. What is true of him when you are in Christ is now true of you. We've been crucified with Christ, buried with Christ, and raised with Christ. And then in Romans 7, you have this chapter where you see Paul struggling. He knows that he's been set free from sin, and yet, what does he find? A struggle to overcome the power of sin. And in that chapter, we learn it takes time. Old habits and old patterns die hard. Though we can say no to sin, because you really do have the power to say no, we often don't it's one of the great mysteries of the faith and Paul struggles with that he says the law is good but it's powerless to help us overcome the trappings of sin and he ends the chapter with this cry of anguish by saying I do not understand my own actions I do not do what I want but I do the very thing I hate wretched man that I am who will deliver me from this body of death Then against all expectations, Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 1 lands a little different when you think about it in that context, doesn't it? Christian, memorize this verse. Let it anchor your soul. In the Greek, it reads, the first three words are nothing therefore now. In Greek, they When they want to emphasize a word, they put it at the very beginning of a sentence. English has a very specific word pattern. Like you can't just jumble up English words or the whole sentence doesn't make sense. Greek has a little more freedom. And so if you're the writer and you want to emphasize something, you put it at the beginning of the sentence. The first word in this sentence is nothing. Nada. None. It's an absolute zero. Not a trace or a hint of condemnation. Why? How can this be? That's why the word therefore is so important. The basis of our no condemnation is because we have been justified. We have been declared righteous and we are now in Christ. A change of status has happened. Listen, God cannot pass a death sentence and a condemnation sentence on those who are in Christ Jesus. You've already been declared righteous. That's already happened. Because Jesus took the penalty on himself, because he defeated sin and death by the power of his resurrection, because we've been united to him in his vindication and in his victory, everything that is true of Jesus is now true of you. And Paul gives us a time stamp with the word now. That is true of you now. That's so important. Because I think a lot of us think, well, that'll come later. I'll know I have salvation later. And I want to tell you, friends, no, you have that now. Right this very moment, you are in the age of redemption. If you are in Christ, this is true of you right now. Not tomorrow, not when you've proved yourself, right now. And it's so important not to confuse this status of justification with the progress of sanctification. Those are, they're, they're just some words in Christianity that we can't replace. 
These are some of them. You need to learn justification and you need to learn sanctification. Justification is the act of God whereby he declares us in right standing. It's a declaration. It's something that has happened. It happens in a moment. The moment the gavel comes down, that's the reason why the judge bangs on the gavel. It's making a loud noise to say, right now. As soon as it comes down, it's now. It just happened. So God's verdict on your life, when you put your faith and trust in him, is the gavel coming down, marking that moment in time, you are righteous. It happens in a moment. Sanctification is a progress. It's the act of God whereby he makes us righteous. The big difference here is declaration and making us. A declaration happens in a moment. Sanctification is a process over time. Dan Doriani writes this. Condemnation is the opposite of justification, not sanctification. Therefore, we shouldn't imagine that every trace of sin has disappeared. The penalty is gone. Yes, but the allure, the episodes, the habits of sin remain. According to Romans 7, the strongest disciples still battle sin and lose a few rounds in sporadic mistakes and chronic problems. We sulk and rage. We succumb to physical appetites and grandiose dreams. Therefore, we disappoint ourselves and God disciplines us. Now listen to this. We may even condemn ourselves, but God does not. So what he's saying is, if you have been declared righteous, you will still struggle with sin. But that is not the basis of your being condemned. Because you have already been declared righteous. Romans 8.1 is saying that because we are justified, we are no longer condemned. It has been annulled. Every single person in this room, in this town, all across the world, is either one or the other. I know those like everyone is just one or the other, things get reductionistic, but this is actually very true. You are either, right now, united to your sin and therefore condemned, or you are united to Christ and therefore justified. We, we could divide the room into two groups today. You are either still in your sin and therefore this sentence of condemnation is, is already on you, or you are united to Christ and therefore righteous. Recently, there were two activists with a group called Just Stop Oil, and they went into the National Gallery in London. And they were armed with a can of tomato soup, and they walked up to Van Gogh's 1888 masterpiece, Sunflowers. You know what I'm talking about, that painting, Sunflowers? And as they walked in, they, you, can, you can watch the video. They, they opened up the can and they hurled the soup onto the painting. Just tomato soup glopped all over it. This painting is valued at $83 million, but in a lot of ways it's kind of a priceless treasure. In the video, you can hear people like gasp. You know, everyone's like watching, you know, looking and, and doing like the art museum thing, you know, where we like pretend to be more sophisticated than we really, really are. But as the can of tomato soup goes on the painting, you can hear this <gasps> in the room. Because a priceless treasure had been vandalized forever. Well, later that afternoon, the National Gallery issued a statement. 
Here's what they said. There is some minor damage to the frame, but the painting was unharmed. See, as it turns out, galleries like us believe in total depravity. So they believe that people are going to do sinful things like this, and they are prepared. The painting, all the paintings have a fine glaze of glass protecting them. So fine that it's imperceptible to the human eye, and it protected it from the acidity and the stain of the soup. Christian, our failure to live according to the law may indict us. Satan will often, listen to how crummy he is. He will tempt you and allure you, and then the moment you sin, that same finger that was saying, hey, come on, will turn around and accuse you. We will even blame and condemn ourselves for our own shortcomings. But friends, none of these cans of soup can vandalize and condemn us. We are protected. We are covered by the blood of the Lamb. When you are, by God, declared righteous and you are hid with Christ. That's the word that that Paul uses. You are hid with Christ. Just like that painting is, is hid behind this this veil of glass, when you are hid with Christ, you're protected. The atoning work of Christ, friends, is greater than all our sin. The declaration declaration of God that we are righteous is the final word. You don't get to say a word that, that trumps God's word. God has the final word. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christian, let the truth of that settle upon your heart. Let, it, let that reality overwhelm any contradictory feelings that may arise. I hear so many times people say, but I don't, but I don't feel righteous. I don't feel like God accepts me. And I'm not trying to invalidate your feelings. What I am trying to get you to do is, feelings are good, but they're not ultimate. You need to allow reality to inform those feelings. Because when your life is hid with Christ, that is the dominating, overpowering reality. So that we can truly sing when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. Upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. So when you feel like you are not hid with Christ, when you feel like God's condemnation is speaking over you, look up and see that in Christ you have been set free from the penalty of sin. Your condemnation, Christian, has been annulled. Now let's look at verse 2 to see that our liberation has begun. Paul says, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now, In order to understand what Paul is saying, we have to understand what he means by this phrase, law of the spirit of life, and what he means by law of sin and death. In one sense, they're both a reference to the law of Moses, the Torah, or we might just simply say God's law of what is right and wrong. But they seem contradictory, and what they're doing is looking at the law from two different angles. Let me explain. So Paul's already stated in the book of Romans that the law itself is good. Paul's not against the law. It was good of God to give us his good law. It's a gift that God would clearly state his expectations of what is required. See, the problem with the law is not the law. 
The problem with the law is us. We are both unwilling and unable to keep it. And so because of that, the law, what does it do? It reveals our sin. Every failure, every time we don't live up to God's law, the law is saying, hey, you don't measure up. Hey, you, you, you didn't, you didn't, you didn't, uh, uh, you haven't marked perfection. And that condemns us to death. That's why Paul called it the law of sin and death. Not that the law produces sin and death, but by its revelation to us, it, it condemns us with law and death. And this is precisely what we've been set free from. We are set free from the impossible task of perfect obedience to the law that only ends in revealing our utter sinfulness and deserve death. Commentator Derek Thomas writes this, there are only two ways of salvation, by the law or by grace. If salvation is to happen by the law, perfect obedience is necessary. There can be no blemishes or shortcomings for the law will never show mercy. It knows nothing of grace or forgiveness. It demands perfection because whoever transgresses in one tiny detail transgresses the whole of God's law. What have we been set free from? We are set free from the impossible task of perfect obedience to the law. In Christ, we aren't working to achieve the impossible demand of perfect obedience. Rather, by grace, we receive the unbelievable gift of Christ's perfection. Remember, Grace is something you receive, not something you achieve. Friends, law-keeping, perfect obedience, is impossible. Law-keeping, therefore, is impossible, powerless to save. It only condemns. But, Paul says, the spirit of the law of life can set us free. This is talking about the Holy Spirit. And he can set us free from the impossible demands of the law. In other words, we are set free... We are liberated from, laws, from the law's death sentence by grace through faith as we confess our sinfulness and our need for a righteousness that is achieved not through obedience to the law but received from the one who perfectly lived out that law on our behalf. And that's exactly where he goes next in verse 3 through 4. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. So what is he saying? Well, first of all, he's saying uh, that the problem of the law is not the law, but that its impotence is because of the flesh. Our human nature is broken, and so instead of embracing God's law as good, our human nature repudiates God's law. This union of God's law and our flesh is unstable and therefore doomed to fail. Think about it like this. Imagine a household that has uh, an excellent more than enough income. You know, I mean, they make a ton of money. It's a lot of money, whatever that number is. But, inst- but the problem is the people living in that home have an insatiable uh, habit of spending beyond their means, racking up debt after debt, overspending with reckless abandon. My guess is that if, uh, if you made a million dollars a year, you, if I asked you, hey, would that be enough for your lifestyle? You'd be like, yeah, that's more than enough. But you can outspend that. It's not impossible to spend. It's not that the income isn't enough. It's that the people who live in that home are never satisfied and spend beyond their means. That's exactly what Paul is saying. He's saying the law is a good thing. And with perfect obedience, it would therefore theoretically uh, save you. But the problem is 
that we have this insatiable desire to not obey the law, to contradict God's law, to repudiate God's law. So Paul says God does what the law was powerless to do. See, the law couldn't save us. The law couldn't liberate us. So what does he do? He takes initiative. He takes action. God the Father sent God the Son to be our liberator. And I want you to notice something. Every single time in the Bible when it talks about salvation, you know who's the subject of that sentence? Not us. It's always God. He's the, he's the active agent. He's the guy in front of the verb. We're the guy after the verb. God initiates salvation. So God the Father sent the Son to be our liberator. Now it's important not to confuse or miss what Paul is saying. These words are packed with a lot of Christology, thinking about Christ. So first, Paul says that God the Son came in the likeness of sinful flesh. What does that mean, likeness of sinful flesh? That when God the Son, who has always existed, came from heaven to earth to be born, he took on flesh. Okay, so God the Son, fully God, comes to earth. He doesn't stop being God. He still remains being God. He just adds on a human nature to his already divine nature. Now, you and I can't do that, but God can because he's God. So he takes on a human nature right there with his divine nature, not confused, not conflated, not 50% and 50%, 100% and 100%. And Paul is saying that the flesh of Jesus Christ is like ours in the sense that he has a real human nature. Jesus didn't appear to be human. He wasn't kind of human. He wasn't this third thing. He was human. But it's not exactly like ours because Jesus was not sinful. So one commentator says it like this. The flesh of Christ is like ours in as much as it is flesh, meaning it's human but only like ours because it's not exactly like it because he's not sinful. So Jesus is fully God and fully man. He's able to represent us because he has a human nature like ours, but it's not like ours because it's not broken and depraved. See, if Paul had said that Jesus came in sinful flesh, that would have called into question the sinlessness of Jesus. He also didn't say that Jesus came in the likeness of flesh, That wording would have questioned the fullness of his humanity. Jesus had a fully human nature, yet it was a sinless human nature. Born under the demands of the law, meaning Jesus had to live out and fulfill the law. But he wasn't under the curse and guilt of sin. That's why he was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. Every day of Jesus' life, he was living for us. We often think about what Jesus did when he died for us. But friends, his life was just as important as his death. And I don't mean just simply that we have the teachings of Christ and he did some miracles. I'm talking about every single day denying the impulse toward sin, denying the temptations toward sin. He was living out perfect righteousness. He was perfectly obeying for us. He was doing what we are incapable of doing. He was achieving so that one day we could be receiving. He lived his life, Paul says, so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. And second, Paul says that God sent the Son for sin. That word for sin is not a inconsequential prepositional 
phrase. It is technical language for a sin offering. Meaning, if you read through the book of Leviticus, if you read through the book of Numbers, if you look in Hebrews, you'll see that this becomes the technical term when something is given as a sacrifice for sin. So not only did God send the Son to live a perfect life for us, he sent him as, a, as an offering, as a sacrifice given for sin. So Paul is saying, Jesus came to save sinners. That's why his name is Jesus. Yeshua means Jesus, God saves. That's his name. And he did this precisely by living a perfect life and by offering a sacrifice for our sins. In other words, the cross was not merely a torture device perfected by the Romans, which it was. But on that day when Jesus died, the cross became an altar. The cosmic altar whereby the Lamb of God was slain for the sins of the world. And Paul also says that God sent the Son to condemn sin in his flesh. This is the wrath of God against sin. It's God's settled opposition towards evil and sin. This, anytime you see the word wrath, it's God's justice, this idea an attribute of justice put into action. It's the execution of his justice. On the cross, Jesus endured that condemnation, the penalty we deserved. And though our liberation is freely given to us, we know that it was not free. It cost Jesus his life. And yet Hebrews says, for the joy set before him, he endured the scorn and shame of the cross. He did not go begrudgingly. He went joyfully. In Christ, our condemnation has been annulled. In Christ, our liberation has begun. We're free from the penalty of sin. And right now, friend, you and I are being set free from the power of sin. There should be this trajectory, this progression over time. Maybe the sins that you were unable to say no to in the first days of your uh, new life in Christ, five years, ten years, twenty years down the road, you find yourself not only able to say no, but not just because of white-knuckle behavior modification, but because they've, they've lost their grip on you. That what seemed desirable in the past is no longer desirable now. His righteousness is ours, and we are now free not to live for ourselves or under the pressure of perfection, but free to live for Christ. And that's where Paul goes as he finishes at the, the last half of verse 4. As we see, our empowerment is the spirit and so Paul says us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit so real quick let's just track this logical progression in these four verses Paul's saying because our condemnation has been annulled because our death sentence has been vacated because Christ has set us free from the prison of sin and the demands of the law newness of life is not only possible but it's the only proper response See, implicit in this verse is a call to live righteously as a response to all that God has done for us in Christ. In other words, the only proper response to the grace of God is a life of grateful holiness. In other words, your whole life should be one giant thank you to God. Like when you've been given an amazing gift... What should, be, what should come out of your mouth, right? Thank you. 
And this happens as we walk according to the Spirit. Now this word walk in biblical literature is referring to a way of life. And it makes sense, right? Our lives are lived one day at a time. And when you're walking somewhere, what do you do? You go one step at a time. Walking then implies steady, gradual process toward a goal. Progress when you're on a long journey is not counted one step at a time. And sometimes not even one mile at a time. Right? And it's interesting. If you read Romans 7, just read through it and count how many times Paul uses the first person pronoun I. It's I, 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 I. Paul's looking inward at this struggle. In Romans 7, the I is frequent, the law is prominent, and sin is dominant. But then when you read Romans 8, all those personal pronouns fade into the background. The Spirit is mentioned 19 times in Romans 8. And in this chapter, God's grace and his persevering love are prominent, and victory over sin becomes dominant. As we make our way through Romans 7, we're going to see that the Spirit gives all kinds of gifts. He gives life, including freedom from sin and death. We'll see that the Spirit sanctifies us by resetting our minds and empowering the body. We'll see that the Spirit leads sons of God into a spirit of adoption. Where we start to come to realize that we are sons and daughters of God. The Spirit will bestow a hope of glory on us even in the midst of our sufferings. The Spirit will intercede for us. You know those times when you just don't even know the words to pray? The Holy Spirit is right there pleading your case before the Lord. The Spirit will give you confidence that you are in Christ. It will give you confidence and assurance in his second coming. In Romans 8, Paul is going to continue to unpack our identity in Christ and give us more information about what it means to walk according to the Spirit. Christian, you've been set free from the bondage of the flesh. And so Paul is saying, live like it. Live with gratitude. You're no longer in Adam, but are in Christ. So live like it. In other words, Jesus fulfilled the law for us once and for all, having freed us from the penalty of sin. And now the Spirit not only fulfills the law in us, but does so gradually over time as he frees us from the power of sin. So that we can walk in newness of life. Like I said, he's going to unpack what that means more over the weeks to come. But I want to give you five words to think through what it means to walk according to the Spirit. They're all adverbs and they describe walking. That's what adverbs do. They describe verbs, right? And so I want you to think about these words and say, is this characteristic of my walk with the Lord? So here are those five words. Intentionally. Continually. Humbly, obediently, and prayerfully. Intentionally. What do I mean by that? Well, are you thoughtful about your time with the Lord? Is it intentional? Do you make it a priority? Because the reality is we are intentional with the things we value. If it's important to you, I can promise you you're intentional with it. So do you prioritize prayer and reading scripture and gathering with God's people? These are some of the most primary ways that God dispenses his sanctifying grace to us and it's okay that they're not impressive they're not magical but the continual intentional giving yourself to those means of sanctifying grace will produce change in your life over time I think about God's relationship uh, similar to a marriage between a husband and a wife 
Just like all relationships grow with intentional time, our relationship with God grows with intentional time. So I find this at work. When I prioritize time with Andy, if you don't know, that's my wife, and I give genuine effort, you know what happens? Our relationship grows. It's not rocket science. When I prioritize that time, when I'm intentional, our relationship grows. Second word, continually. Again, the marriage example is helpful. A marriage cannot grow by relying on past time. You can't grow in your walk with the Lord by relying on time with him in the past. That stuff is good and it's important to remember, but relationships are always moving. They're always growing. You can't grow with your walk with the Lord by being like, years ago I read my Bible. Like what would happen if I just stopped talking with my wife? Stopped going on dates with her and simply said, listen, I put in a lot of time over these 14 years. Isn't that enough for you? What more do you want? That, 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 that those are many years. It should be enough. I've filled your tank to last the rest of our lives. How do you think she would take to that? Not good. I can assure you it would not result in closeness and intimacy. We would grow and drift apart. Walking with the Lord means regular, intentional, intentional, and continual time with him. Third, it involves humility, humbly. While independence may be great for a nation, it is a terrible thing for a human trying to live a life of victory over sin. Somehow we have to take that American ideal of independence and not uh, bring it into our relationship with God. We do not want to be independent from God. God did not deliver us, set us free to go do whatever we wanted. In the, in the book of Exodus, which uh, we're going to be preaching next year, it's one of my favorite books of the Bible. When, when Moses comes up there and says, let my people go, that's not the end of his sentence. Did you know that? It's let my people go so that they may go worship me. Charlton Heston got it wrong. It's not just let my people go, period. It's let my people go so that they may go and worship me. Deliverance from sin is always meant to be connection to God. You cannot try to live this life on your own power. You must admit and confess your constant need for the Spirit's help. And that takes humility. Humility is the antidote to independence. Fourth, obediently. Walking with God means that we have to desire obedience. You have to want it. You have to see it as your good. And to obediently, you could add a couple extra bonus adverbs, willingly and joyfully. See, begrudging obedience is not really obedience. We say in our home all the time, to obey means to do so all the way, right away, in a happy way. Right? Without disgust. See, if you obey and you mutter and murmur and grumble, it's not real obedience. This is where you ask the Spirit to change your desires. If you find that there aren't those desires there, pray, ask, Spirit, change my desires. And finally, prayerfully, we need to ask God for help. I think I've mentioned prayer in every one of them, and that was on purpose. Prayer not only grows our relationship with God, but it is ordained by God as a means of fulfilling his will for us in our lives. So friends, let's live our life empowered by the Spirit to say thank you to the Lord for all that he has done for us in Christ. And as we close, I want to ask you two questions. Here's the first question. 
is the driving force in your life a personal quest to make a name for yourself, to prove yourself, to validate your life, to earn favor, to work off debt, hoping that God would see something good in you? Does that characterize this driving force in your life? And I, I chose all those words on purpose because they're, they, they, they speak to the different ways that our sin tries to uh, live life apart from Christ. Making a name for ourselves, proving ourselves, validating ourselves, earning favor, working off debt, whatever it may be. Hoping that God might see something in us, some, some, some glimmer of goodness and therefore accept you. If that is you, if those words ring true, my prayer is that you would grow weary with that vain pursuit. That you would grow weary with that struggle of sin, buckling under the weight of the law, despairing of condemnation of guilt. My prayer is that you would receive the offer of the gift of salvation that is for us in Christ. It could begin today. The gavel could come down today with a prayer that says, Father, I am so tired of trying to prove myself, validate myself, do this on my own. Romans tells us real simply that if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, if you believe in your heart that uh, Christ is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, that you will be saved. And here's a second question. Is the driving force in your life a spirit-empowered thank you for the forgiveness, mercy, grace, liberation, and identity you have received in Christ? If that identifies you, then praise the Lord, Christian, remember that your condemnation has been annulled. There is nothing, not the law, not Satan, not another church member, not even yourself that can vandalize the love of God for you. You have been set free. So walk in the power of the Spirit intentionally, continually, humbly, obediently, and prayerfully. Let's pray.